It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Looney. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to the Sunday edition of Daily Thunder, which for all practical purposes is our campus church service. So uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar, I'm guessing most everyone here that is present is familiar that uh, we do this seven days a week. Isn't that fun just to think of doing this seven days a week and proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ when we were as a staff, we were discussing doing this. It started, I think, last March uh, that we started doing this. It's almost been a year. It was late March. And uh, the story that really inspired us to actually do Daily Thunder was a story from Brother Andrew, uh, which is one of our favorite uh, biographies. And there was, Brother Andrew was spending time and he was going to a Bible school that when it's described, sounds just like Ellerslie. It's, it's weird, okay? So in the book, we're all sort of looking at each other like, that's weird. And in this, this Brother Andrew couldn't get accepted. There was no room in the program, so he was in a foreign country, didn't really speak very good English, and uh, so he gets stuck with this family who is, uh, this man was a, a businessman, and he was a man who just focused on evangelism all day long every day, and so that's just what he did. And so he, Brother Andrew was hanging out with him, and he would go to this mission, sort of like a rescue mission, where a lot of homeless uh, people would be, and he would preach every day, and he would just share the gospel. And he would get up in front of empty chairs. No one was there this one time, and Brother Andrew's like, what's going on? And this guy gave a rip-roaring message to empty chairs. And uh, Brother Andrew was asking him why he did that afterwards, and he said, uh, you know, basically the statement would be, because I don't remember quotations, but nothing is ever wasted. You know, we preach the word of God, and we do it for him, and we let God, you know, disseminate and do his work with it. But there were, you know, this, this message is sinking into someone's soul. And then halfway along the trip home, they run into a homeless man. And the, this, this businessman just starts right where he left off in his message preaching. As if the guy should already know the first half, and now he's going to finish with the second half. And the guy melts before the power of God, gives his life to Christ, and goes home with them. Uh, and that's always stood out to me, this idea of proclaiming the truth even when it appears no one's listening. And so when we first started out <laughs> Daily Thunder... We would meet, uh, especially on the weekends, we had our 7.15 a.m. Sunday morning version of this, and uh, I, that was, I got that shift, uh, and there were, I think Nathan got it when I was out of town once, too. Do, do we, Nathan, are you here? Are you behind that wall? Uh, no, he's not. Oh, that's right. He has brunch today for the students, uh, and so, but there were, there were times when it was only Nathan in the back <laughs> doing the sound, and it was oh, the whole, the whole Chapel set up for church, right? So it's loads of, of chairs, and then there's Eric. And I'm thinking about that story, and I'm preaching my heart out. And what's interesting is the impact of Daily Thunder over this past year, even those sessions when no one was in the crowd, even though I was acting like there was. I mean, I'm talking to people, right? I'm giving good eye contact even while I'm doing it to these empty chairs. The impact of those messages was, was felt around the world. There were people listening, which is, of course, we know that there's podcasts and things like that, which, you know, you could say, well, Eric, yeah, there's a podcast. Yeah, but when you are a live preacher, <laughs> it is, you, you speak to an audience. You do. That's what we're, we're used to. And so just as Luke says, he writes unto King Theophilus. The way that I look at it is I am preaching unto Christ. 
And if someone wants to listen in, they can. It's, it's a mentality of saying, I do this for my king. And that's the way Daily Thunder started. It's been a very, very precious process for us. I'm going through, I'm usually going through a series. Nathan is usually going through a series when he has his uh, little segments. We do have some standalones that come in on Saturdays, uh, little special guest uh, sessions. But uh, I'm going through a series called Spiritual Lessons from World War II right now. And I ran into a guy yesterday that uh, said he's loving the World War II series. That was encouraging because I, I do feel a little awkward talking about World War II and spiritual life simultaneously, even though I'm extremely fascinated with World War II. My fascination isn't just to give a historical dump and to give you some good trivia. It has been really neat. There's, there's certain people even in this room. I mean, Josh Kinnebrew is in the back. And Josh is one of the, the things that started me getting refascinated in war history even, I don't know, it was, a couple of, was it a couple of years ago now or is it a year ago? Um, and we started dealing with World War I and then World War II sort of just comes out of that. But I've been so impacted on a spiritual level studying this. I know that sounds totally strange to any of you that haven't watched, listened to the first parts uh, of this, the first eight parts, this is part nine. But I have been greatly impacted by viewing how evil can grow when good men do nothing and what happens when you rise up to resist against evil and you see actually the sparks fly. It's very fascinating. We have in World War II probably one of the most defined pictures of evil that was ever on earth and that is the Nazi regime run by Adolf Hitler. And of course in uh, Soviet Russia you have Soviet communism, which is one ugly beast as well, and both of these are players in this grand schematic of World War II. So the title is very stirring to me. What is wanted is a man. I, I don't know if that stirs you. That stirs me. I, I get uh, certain things, you know, that, uh, and I don't know what it is about us men, but we're almost like, you feel like Someone could play us like an instrument at, at different times. You know, you put epic background score music and you create a trailer. And in the trailer, it just sort of has that booming thing where it shows some hero rising up and then they cut off and go to the, the title of the movie. It's like coming in February. You know, it's like, oh, need to see that. Because there's something in us that knows that life is supposed to have that heroism in it. It is supposed to have that purpose and most of us live rather bland existences. And so that's why Hollywood swoops in and creates this image and says, look, we can solve that part of you. We will show you what you know, others or these imaginary people have done. And that will sort of play you and play you as the instrument and you'll be settled and satisfied. And yet for me, I'm not satisfied by the false version of it. I want the real version. And since I am so utterly convinced that there is a real version, this is why Leslie and I have spent a good deal of our life and our marriage studying great Christians of history. It is what stirs us at the deepest levels. And so a title like this, What is Wanted is a Man. I'm going to take that out of a quote, uh, and it's, it's a good one. <clears throat> so there was a celebration in 1897, uh, and it was a commemoration Sort of like your, uh, I don't know how many years it had been, if it had been 700 years or it had been 600 years at this time, since William Wallace. I think it was 600 years. But it was a celebration that was in honor of Sir William Wallace and his deeds of bringing liberty and freedom 
to, uh, to Scotland. And so the Earl of Rosebery uh, is, in his speech, is going to say these words. So this is in reference to William Wallace, okay? So I need to acknowledge that, which is good. I mean, Ellerslie's the birthplace of William Wallace, so we feel like we have a little kinship with it. But I'm not necessarily reading this so that you can think of William Wallace, okay? I'm, this was sent to me in a letter this past week to remind me of the significance of continuing to stand. It had a deep impact on me. It was an Ellerslie graduate that sent this to me. And, in a, and it just happens to fit very well with this message. And I even named the message out of a line in this. It is so deeply impacting to me to just ponder these sorts of words. There are junctures in the affairs of men when what is wanted is a man. Not treasures, not fleets, not legions, but a man. The man of the moment, the man of the occasion, the man of destiny, whose spirit attracts and unites and inspires, whose capacity is congenial to the crisis, whose powers are equal to the convulsion, the child and the outcome of the storm. What is wanted is a man. All throughout history, even when you look at scripture, you're going to see generations where God is going to look to and fro, and he's looking for something. What is wanted is a man. Now, it is not to exclude the fact that what is wanted is a woman. I will actually cover that as we go forward. However, as a generalized statement, what is wanted is someone who has the stuff to stand up right now in an age and generation where to stand up means almost certain death. What is needed and what is wanted right now is a man. Is there one out there? So... The Spirit of God will search to and fro, run to and fro throughout the cities and looking for one man who executes justice. Is there one out there? Because generation after generation has proven that there hasn't been. And yet there are generations where God did find a man. And you will see the course of history change when a man stands up. I I don't know if that affects you, but for me, that, is, that strikes me at the deepest part of who I am. It gives me a sense of purpose. I know why I'm here. God knows why he created us, and he intended us to be the one that he finds. And yet something went awry in the Garden of Eden, and we were lost from that grand position of being the rescuing agent. There was a corruption that took place where we turned self-centered instead of outward. And what we see is Jesus coming in in the fullness of time and God finds himself a man. And he sets a pattern in place that in the time, in the darkest hour, there is a man that he is looking for who will stand up. Now that isn't to exclude that there is a woman that he is looking for. However, I'm just saying a man. It makes a lot more sense with the person of Jesus, right? There is a man, there is a woman that is needed to stand up for such a time as this. So William Wallace, the story is grand and epic. Uh, If you read uh, the book, The Scottish Chiefs, which was was one of my favorite books, and technically the third chapter of Scottish Chiefs is Ellerslie. That's actually what the name of the third chapter is. And so you can get some good hints. Ellerslie is not named after a very poor combination of Eric and Leslie, which was a shocking, horrifying thought when someone came up to me and said, that's a very interesting way of combining your names for the name of your ministry. It's like, no, 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 that wasn't what we were doing. It is odd, uh, but it would be a very poor combination. Uh, 
it's the birthplace of William Wallace, and when he married La Lady Marion, he named his estate Ellerslie. And the way that Ellerslie is described in chapter three is it's described using the phraseology from Job chapter 29, which is the ultimate picture of a man that is pouring himself out for the weak. He breaks the jaws of the evildoer and removes the prey from their teeth. It is the most power-packed picture of what masculinity is in probably the entire Bible, and that is what is used to describe his estate. The orphans, the widows, the lonely, they all found refuge at Ellerslie. And so when Leslie and I were seeing this form inside of us to move in this direction, we are like, well, whatever that is, is the environment we want to build. And so as a result, you see the name Ellerslie sort of associated with this. And I've been associated with William Wallace because I have a book called The Bravehearted Gospel. Everyone thinks I just talk about William Wallace all the time. I don't, and I don't know how in the world I got so many things tied to him. But hey, if, if, uh, if he was the man for the hour, I like that, and he was. And that speech was about him. And so, I mean, hey, I like this stuff, and I'll be associated with that. But William Wallace was offered the king position of Scotland multiple times and declined it. He was a man who was not interested in his own gain. He was interested in the protection of his homeland. And he was willing to spend his life to get it. And there's some great stories. There's a, there's a clip out of one of my messages. I want to say it's, it's a message called The Bravehearted Man from years ago, which it's a clip out of one of the chapters called Rosalind, where Wallace has had to flee his own country because his, the, the elders of the land want him dead. He's a threat to them because the people of the country are going after him, but they are being forgotten. They're in league with Edward, and they're willing to sell Scotland to England, basically betray Scotland, and Wallace will not. And so Wallace is standing for true Scotland, and the elders turn against him, and they're ready to kill him, so he flees, basically for his life. And he's hiding over in France, but he, he knows the plight of his people. His people are dying. His people are being uh, overtaken and they need a leader. What is wanted is a man. So he dresses up as a French soldier, never opens his visor, and he enters back into the battle to fight on behalf of Scotland in anonymity. No one even knows it's him, and he's willing to spend his life and die not even being recognized for his heroism. Okay, that's a level of heroism that is rare. And the key moment in the story, bless you, the key moment in the story of, of Rosalind is the English uh, are overtaking the Scottish. It's a key battle, and if the Scots lose this one, it's, it's all downhill. And Wallace is fighting, but he's seeing his men losing heart, and they're becoming fearful. And once one guy starts to run, it's like an epidemic. And so he begins to see the, the broad retreat, and they're going to be rooted if, if he doesn't do something. Everything hangs in the moment, but if he exposes who he is, he'll be killed. But if he doesn't expose who he is, his people don't have a leader. So he rises up to the top of a cliff, whips off his helmet, and shouts, Men of Scotland! And they all look up and they behold their leader. And even though he's basically laying down his life in the process, all, of, all the Scots turn and they're like, Yeah, Wallace! And they go running back into battle and destroy the English. What is wanted is a man. But when that man stands up, he's basically saying, God, my life, take it. We have to recognize that when God is looking for someone, he's looking for someone to spend. 
He's not looking to, you know, just have you lie down uh, in a nice hammock and be uh, fanned and fed grapes and drink a pina colada. What he's looking for is a man who is ready to be spent for the purposes of his king. George Washington. Now, I, I've studied, and I used to teach early American history, and I'm a big fan of George Washington. Almost every character I'm talking about has, there's a whole movement against all of these men to blandish their reputations. So there was something, I didn't even read the article, but there was something about George Washington, and there was all these people that hated him. They came, there's some article that came out, and it's, you know, pops up on my screen. It's like, yeah, that figures. That figures. Any guy that I really like and respect, then someone wants to tarnish it and throw some uh, muck on it. And I really like George Washington. And so George Washington, just some great stories with him. But one of my favorites is the Continental Congress coming to him. They're looking for a president. They're looking for someone who will lead this new form of government, this constitutional republic. And they, they all think of the same guy. But that guy's in retirement, and he's done. He just led the Revolutionary War, and, you know, he's, he doesn't want to be talked to. Just leave him alone <laughs> for a season. Let him go back to a peaceful life. And so they all know, we need George. So they, they appeal to Washington. They say, would you take the leadership of our country? He's like, no. I am not at all interested. Isn't that fascinating? You are offered the presidency of the United States, and you say no. Well, you notice something similar about Wallace and Washington that I like? Neither of them wanted the leadership. They were not in it for power. So they come to Washington, I don't know how many times they entreated him, and finally he's like, all right, look, I'll do this for you. He's doing it for his country, not because it's easy, but what that man became was a lightning rod. In other words, the moment you take that position, you're laying down your life. Winston Churchill. Now we're in uh, World War II. And I'm going to go through the story of Winston Churchill when what was wanted was a man. Now, again, my middle name is Winston, and I, I really like that middle name as I go through this. Now, what's interesting is, again, Winston Churchill has been tarnished. I mean, I, I'm not going to defend the fact that he drank a lot of brandy and smoked a lot of cigars. <laughs> I have no interest in trying to be like Winston Churchill in those regards, okay? He was a rather tubby man, and I'm not interested in just starting to gain weight so I can look like him, okay? <laughs> However, he was a man, okay, I'm going to say it different, he was a man. I mean, there is something about this man's life and decisions which are deeply stirring to me. His passion for the Jews in the midst of this and his willingness to say, this must stop. And even the Jews, the Holocaust Society, recognizes this man as being one of the greatest advocates for them in the history of the world. Isn't that interesting? It's just Winston Churchill, a guy who drank a lot of brandy and smoked a lot of cigars. What was it about this man? There is something that you're going to see as far as a quality that is going to rise up that deeply stirs me. My dad was named after him. My dad was born in 1941, which the, uh, World War II is going to start in 1939. Churchill is going to come into the prime minister position in 1940. So you can see, even in America, People were impacted by this man's choices and what he was doing. And to the point where my dad is named after him, and I'm named after my dad, but I, I still would like to think I'm named after my dad and Winston Churchill, because I want something of what this guy has. When God is looking to and fro, I want him to find a man who is ready to fill the gap. A man who is ready to say, yes, Lord, even if it costs me my life. 
That's easier said on paper than it is in reality. In other words, most of us, we could go around and say, okay, how about each of us say these words? God, even if it costs me my life, yes, my answer is yes. Well, it's very easy when we're in here, and it's easy. It's very difficult when a gun is aimed at your head. Do you want your life, or do you want to die for this faith that you have? I want to die for the faith that I have, and I'll do it gladly. You see, in those moments, to rise up with a boldness and a spine that is strong is a rare thing in world history. That's what I want to see in us. Winston Churchill, that's his victory signal. So we're going to go to May 8th, 1940. Uh, this is, now if you remember my message on Friday, if you were here, I was talking about May 10th, 1940, which is a huge day in history. And it's actually uh, when there was something called the Twilight War, when the World War II starts, you're going to see... Uh, an invasion of Poland, and then an invasion of Norway, and an invasion of Denmark. And then, but it's, it's really nothing's touching France and Great Britain except for naval war, and it's, it's called the Twilight War by Neville Chamberlain. So it's like, it's not really war like they had in World War I. It's war, and they've declared war on each other, but Great Britain and France are trying to build up their weapons because they're weak, because they they've been disarming while Hitler was arming. And so they're doing their best to arm up, but they're not going to attack. I mean, Great Britain and France are like, hey, we're not attacking. And so they're waiting, and it's this disquieting season. And May 10th, something is going to break forth when Germany is going to operate in its blitzkrieg. It's, it's speed war. It's lightning war, and it's going to hit uh, Holland and Belgium and then rush into France. And it, so on Friday, I called it the Fall of France, or the Battle of France, or what the two names that it's historically understood as. May 8th, right before that, okay, that's why I'm, I'm saying all that, two days before that, you're going to, at May 10th, is possibly one of the darkest days in the history of Great Britain, because Great Britain has one ally in this war left, and that's France on the other side of the English Channel. So when I say that France is going to fall in the very near future, you can imagine what that's going to feel like for Great Britain. That's why on Friday I was talking about the principle of loneliness and how God leverages that to train us in our life for strength. That's exactly what's going to happen in Great Britain. But this message is going to focus not on the national side, but on the individual side. Great Britain needs a strong leader. There's a vote of no confidence in Neville Chamberlain, who has spent the last 10 years, basically, uh, not, not that long, but the last six years, appeasing Hitler. And he's, he's wanting to say, hey, whatever you want, Hitler. And so, oh, you, you want to you take uh, the Rhineland? You take it. You want to take Austria? You take it. You want to take the Sudetenland? You take it. You want to take Czechoslovakia? Okay, we're not, we don't like it, but we're not going to do anything. Passivity is actually creating a monster known as Nazism. So as a result, on May 8th, 1940, there's a vote to remove Neville Chamberlain. This guy must go. So uh, I'm just going to say these photos weren't helping. That's Neville Chamberlain in his uh, kind, loving <laughs> relationship with Hitler. This is not going over well with the British people right about now. When the British people wanted peace, this was wonderful. But now they're recognizing they don't have peace. This is an evil man. I don't know why it took them this long to recognize that. However, they're recognizing this is not good. Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister Chamberlain, you have got us in a pickle. Okay, you're going to have to go. 
So Lloyd George, who was the prime minister during World War I, says, I say solemnly that the prime minister should give an example of sacrifice because there is nothing which can contribute more to victory in this war than that he should sacrifice the seals of office. If we're going to win this war, we need him out. And so as a result, key moments when Lloyd George says that, that's a big, that's a big death knell type of statement. So here's what's interesting. So this is May 8th, 1940. This is the discussion in the House and it's a dark moment. The conservatives, which is what uh, Neville Chamberlain led, uh, Winston Churchill is one of them. Winston Churchill has to make a decision. He is not, Winston Churchill is decidedly not the one that created this havoc. He's not the one that made the decisions that Neville Chamberlain made. He was totally against Neville Chamberlain's decisions. But get what Winston Churchill is going to do. For the sake of his country, he stands up to defend Neville Chamberlain. And he stands and speaks on behalf of Neville Chamberlain to, to not do this, to not disrupt our country at such a vulnerable time and remove our prime minister. Who stands up? Winston Churchill. To do what? To defend the prime minister that he knows put this country in the position. But to save his country, he's going to defend Neville Chamberlain. And everyone's just hurling invectives at him. If you've, if you've seen any of those parliamentary types of things where some guy is saying what's unpopular and everyone's like, rah, rah, rah. that's what was happening to Winston Churchill. What's Winston Churchill doing? He's standing up for Neville Chamberlain. You don't want to do that because then you might be associated with Neville Chamberlain. This is a man, and I am actually very impressed on May 8th, not with the fact of what Winston Churchill is going to do, but what Winston Churchill does on May 8th to actually defend Neville Chamberlain. So Churchill stands up for his unpopular prime minister. This is Winston Churchill in his own memoirs. I had volunteered to wind up the debate, which was no more than my duty. In loyalty to the chief under whom I served, I did my very best to regain control of the house for the government in the teeth of continuous interruption. Several times the clamor was such that I could not make myself heard. Yet all the time it was clear that their anger was not directed against me but at the Prime Minister, whom I was defending to the utmost of my ability. When I sat down at 11 o'clock, the house divided. This is a dark moment in Great uh, Britain. This is a dark moment in the history because you have a split government and everyone is upset with one another and they're at a time of war where they need agreement. So this is a very dire situation in history. I mean, right now, if they can't pull their act together, Hitler... Hitler's about to invade. In fact, if you want me to give you some ideas of why you think Hitler invaded on May 10th, it's because this is going on in Great Britain. And he knows he wants to strike when they're off balance. So just think about that. This is like precarious situation. Most people would say that Winston Churchill is going to come into power at the worst moment that any leader has ever come into power in any country's history. That's how dark of a moment this is. So this is in private. He is speaking to uh, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. The vote went down and the conservatives hold it, right? So he's still the Prime Minister. They didn't vote him out, but no one wants him there. And it's very, it's very clear that the other parties are not going to stand with him. So it's like, you can say whatever you want, Neville Chamberlain, but we're not standing with you. So as a result, you have a divided government. In a time of war, you cannot have a divided government. What is, what is the statement? A house divided against itself cannot stand? This has been a damaging debate, he says to the prime minister, but you have a good majority. 
Do not take the matter grievously to heart. Strengthen your government from every quarter and let us go on until our majority deserts us. He's standing with Neville Chamberlain. He's like, I'll go down with you. Even though, I tell you what, if you study the history and even read Winston Churchill's speeches that he gave against Neville Chamberlain for all these years, it's like, you're sinking our country. If you don't arm now, if you don't stand against Hitler now, it is going to be disaster for our country. And now... Uh, Winston Churchill is willing to give all that up for the sake of his country. Look, I'm standing with you. You're our leader, and I'm going to serve you. The moment of the man. Churchill learns that he may be called on to lead the nation in its time of greatest peril. This is May 9th, the next day. I don't know. None of us have lived through anything like this. Very few people in world history have ever been put in a position like this. And so I'm just fascinated to study what this man went through. May 9th, this is the next day. Now remember what's happening the following day. May 10th is going to be the fall of France. Is actually what, it's the attack on Holland and Belgium, and then they're going to sweep into France. All, all hell is just about to break loose uh, on Europe. I do not remember exactly how things happened during the morning of May 9th, but the following occurred. Sir Kingsley Wood, who's one of the, uh, oh, it's going to say, it was a very close was very close to the prime minister as a colleague and a friend. They had long worked together in complete confidence. From him I learned that Mr. Chamberlain, that's the prime minister at the time, Neville Chamberlain, was resolved upon the formation of a national government, and if he could not be the head, he would give way to anyone commanding his confidence who could. Thus, by the afternoon, I became aware that I might well be called upon to take the lead. The prospect neither excited nor alarmed me. (laughs) The moment of the man. So you notice this is May 10th, 1940. Belgium and Holland are invaded. The Twilight War ends. Total war begins. This is, I mean, we we look at the start of World War II as the invasion of Germany into Poland. However, all the parts of World War II that we all think of are just about to happen right here. And just think what's happening in in Great Britain. It's it's unstable. Everything is, is teetering. And that's when Hitler chooses to strike. Everything's weak. The morning of the 10th of May dawned, and with it came tremendous news. Boxes with telegrams poured in from the Admiralty. So he's the Admiral of the Navy right now. So he's, he's over the naval side, militarily speaking. So boxes with telegrams poured in from the Admiralty, the War Office, and the Foreign Office. The Germans had struck their long-awaited blow. Holland and Belgium were both invaded. Their frontiers had been crossed at numerous points. The whole movement of the German army upon the invasion of the Low Countries and of France had begun. So I, I haven't done this probably enough is to give you a map so that you can understand. Now, if you go back in time through this series, you recognize the red is Germany. Okay, now, remember how I, I gave it some eyes and some dark eyebrows? It looks like a dragon. Uh, with its mouth uh, eating Czechoslovakia, which is very symbolic. And so the blue country is Holland, or the Netherlands, and then the green one is Belgium. And so to get in, the, the, in World War I, Germany invaded through Belgium, the green country, into France. And uh, it, was, it almost worked in World War I, and, and Germany almost won the war in the very beginning of the war, before even Great Britain had entered in. And so they are going to sweep through the blue and the green countries into the purple country, which is France. Great Britain, I don't know what color that is, what gold, uh, brownish gold, that's sort of an odd, like Winnie the Pooh type of color. Uh, 
And that's right across the English Channel. But you can imagine. Now, if I were to give you some perspective on this, all of this is going to be turning red, okay? Which means it's under Nazi control. So you see in the mouth of the, of the German nation, that's Czechoslovakia. Above its nose is Poland. Uh, above its uh, right ear, <laughs> if you want to say it that way, of the dragon, is Denmark, that little uh, spouting country that comes up, uh, I don't know what, like a feather out of its uh, head. And then above and to the left is Norway. It's going to take all of that. So just think where Great Britain is right now. All of this is going to turn red. And right across that, those waters is an evil empire that no one can stop right now. I mean, no one has even come close. The French army is arguably one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful military force in the world, and it is going to collapse in less than a month. So I don't know how you're feeling on the other side of the English Channel, but your government is divided. They're not even in agreement. And you have the most evil, malignant power maybe in world history that is breathing down your throat. And this is when Winston Churchill is going to be called upon. The moment of the man. At the darkest moment in British history, the weight falls upon Winston. May 10th. This is actually his day. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, that providentially, May 10th could be the day not just that Total war breaks out in World War II, and all hell breaks loose on the earth, but that he gets put in the most important position in the world to carry the one remaining government that is somewhat stable to actually stand against this nefarious evil. At 11 o'clock, I was again summoned to Downing Street by the Prime Minister. There once more I found Lord Halifax, We took our seats at the table opposite Mr. Chamberlain, who's the prime minister at this exact moment. He told us that he was satisfied that it was beyond his power to form a national government. Now, what it means by a national government is coalition government might make more sense to us, but it means it represents each of the parties. It's a united government that each party has voice as opposed to one party leading everything. And so he knows that this is what's needed, but he knows that they won't let him lead it. So the response he had received from the labor leaders left him in no doubt of this. The question, therefore, was whom he should advise the king to send for after his own resignation had been accepted. His demeanor was cool, unruffled, and seemingly quite detached from the personal aspect of the affair. He looked at us both across the table. I've had many important interviews in my public life, and this was certainly the most important. Usually I talk a great deal, but on this occasion I was silent. As I remained silent, a very long pause ensued, It certainly seemed longer than the two minutes which one observes in the commemorations of Armistice Day. Then at length Halifax spoke. By the time he had finished, it was clear that the duty would fall upon me. Had, in fact, fallen upon me. I was taken immediately to the king. His majesty received me most graciously and bade me sit down. He looked at me searchingly and quizzically for some moments and then said, I suppose you don't know why I've sent for you. Adopting his mood, I replied, Sir... I simply couldn't imagine why. He laughed and said, I want, you to, I want to ask you to form a government. I said, I would certainly do so. So I don't know how you're doing right now in the story. It's weird because Winston Churchill's response is very different than the way we are even responding maybe in our inner man, imagining that we're going to be in the situation. Winston Churchill is built for this. He's even going to tell you that. It's like, 
He knows this is what he's supposed to do. He knows this is his hour. This man has been rejected in his own government for the past 11 years. People don't know what to do with Winston Churchill because he's a little too bombastic. He's a very strong leader. You know what Winston Churchill's built for? For war. (laughs) He's built for the darkest hour. When God's looking for a man, he found the the perfect one. There's a story, Lords of the Earth, by Don Richardson. Don Richardson is going to give a reflection on this one missionary. Do you guys remember his name? Stanley Albert Dale. Stanley Albert Dale is one of the most difficult men maybe that ever lived. When you read the biography, you're like, boy, I don't know that I'd want to hang out with Stanley Albert Dale. He is one tough guy. What is he from Australia? Was that where he was from? And he is, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because you would think, how could God ever use a man like this? He's made of thistle. And yet, you know what he is built for? He's built for the exact task that God built him for, which is to reach maybe what would be considered the most unreachable tribe in the entire world of headhunters. And this man is going to walk into this dark domain and he is going to take it on. And as, I mean, this guy is plugged full of arrows in one scene and he literally defies it. And he will not go down. This is one of the strangest men in all of history, Stanley Albert Dale. And all I can say in retrospect is, wow, God built that man for that hour. You look at Winston Churchill and he has some oddities. I'm, like I said, I'm not going to try and look like him. At the same time, there is an aspect of who he is that is what every single one of us should crave to have inside of us. That we are built for the hour that we have been designed to fulfill and to walk in. There is something for each of us. There is an hour for all of us. But the question is, are we being groomed in and through those 11 years of being overlooked in and through those years in the pasture where you're taking care of the sheep, meanwhile, every other soldier gets to go off to battle. And for whatever reason, though, as David was in, in the Old Testament, the greatest warrior in his generation, he isn't even invited. How are you handling the lion and the bear in your life? When you go through those growing seasons, those training seasons, are you doing what God is assigning you to do so that when this hour comes, you're ready? Thus then, on the night of the 10th of May, at the outset of this mighty battle, I acquired the chief power in the state, which henceforth I wielded an ever-growing measure for five years and three months of world war, at the end of which time, all our enemies having surrendered unconditionally or being about to do so, I was immediately dismissed by the British electorate from all further conduct of their affairs. The moment the war ended, you know what the British people voted him out? (laughs) he was built for this it's like oh it's peace now we don't want winston (laughs) winston is the guy you need when all hell breaks loose but now that heaven has come again let's get him out of here i mean even that you could imagine what that felt like but this man was built for this trial during these last crowded days of the political crisis my pulse had not quickened at any moment I took it all as it came. But I cannot conceal from the reader of this truthful account that I, as I went to bed at about 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound sense of relief. 
At last, I had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Ten years in the political wilderness had freed me from ordinary party antagonisms. My warnings over the last six, year had, six years had been so numerous, so detailed, and were now so terribly vindicated that no one could gainsay me. I could not be reproached either for making the war or with want of preparation for it. I thought I knew a good deal about it all, and I was sure I should not fail. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. <laughs> so I'm just going to reference this again. There are junctures in the affairs of men when what is wanted is a man. Not treasures, not fleets, not legions, but a man. The man of the moment, the man of the occasion, the man of destiny, whose spirit attracts and unites and inspires, whose capacity is congenial to the crisis, whose powers are equal to the convulsion, the child and the outcome of the storm. Esther, what was wanted was a girl. See, now for all the ladies in here, it's like, okay now, now we're talking. <laughs> you see, this is history. There are times when God is going to need a man, and obviously you could argue the opposite. There's times when God is looking for a girl. The question is, is that girl going to be ready, and is she going to be obedient when God is looking for her? And that's the question in Esther. This is around 470 B.C. Many of you know the situation. It's during the Babylonian captivity, and you're going to see King Asuherus, this, this king in this, this dictatorial mindset. Law and the rule of law is very serious uh, in this kingdom. And Esther finds favor in a strange way. She is a Jewess, but really that's not the reason she's chosen. She just happens to be Jewish. Meanwhile, Haman, the dark, evil Haman, hates the Jews, and he conspires to literally destroy him. And the king signs into law an edict to destroy all the Jews because they're a problem in his kingdom. And so Haman is ha, 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 uh, winning. But little does he know that God has brought a girl for such a time as this into the courts of the king that just may have favor right now. I mean, the story is preposterously amazing. It really is. So this is Esther to Mordecai. Mordecai is pleading for Esther to intercede, to stand up, to fill a gap. All the king's servants, and this is Esther speaking, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. She's basically saying, Mordecai, I know what you're saying, but for me to do that would likely just mean my death. I would be executed. You, do you know the laws of this land? I am prohibited from doing that. That would be a show of disrespect to my king. He would kill me. Listen to Mordecai's response. This is the response to each of us because we have the same justification. It's like, well, if I stand up, I mean, you fill in the blank what would happen to you. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom 
for such a time as this. Does that stir you? I don't know if I'm the only one that gets stirred by things. I love the epic tones to Christian Christianity. I love it because it's epic. It really is. We don't oftentimes hear the background score. You know, if we had Steve Rosen, he could follow us around and just put that background score behind our life. It would actually be more accurate because when you're in your closet praying, you don't feel very important. You don't feel very significant. And yet what is taking place is significant. It is important. And how do you know that you have not been moved to prayer right now for such a time as this? That nations can be steered by the obedience of an individual life that has been prepped by God for this hour. So listen to Esther's response to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so... I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Yeah, God's looking for that, right there. If I could just circle it on the screen and say, and so yes, I will obey my Lord in this generation. Yes, I will follow him. If he says go unto all uh, the nations and preach, then I will say yes to this. If he says to boldly confess his name, yes is my answer. In other words, my disposition is going to be as hers. And even if it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. That is something rare and special that I want the Spirit of God to touch within us and stir. For such a time as this, God is wanting a Christian. So you notice I didn't use the term man or woman in that just to make it this gender thing. It's a Christian, man and women, men and women. He is looking for those who will behave as Christians ought to behave. As Christians have behaved throughout the centuries, and yes, they perished because of it, but they were Christians, and they steered the course of history in and through their obedience. God uses men and women. So look at the date I put on this one. Sunday, February 23rd, 2020. Uh, Yeah, that's today, just in case you're wondering. God is looking for men and women who will function as William Wallace, George Washington, Winston Churchill, Esther have in the past. The greatest example, of course, being Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord says in Isaiah 59, 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for truth is fallen in the streets and equity cannot enter. So then God looks at you and he says, uh, I built you to do something about that. You see, something is wrong in our world and we can sit and cluck our tongues while watching Fox News or we can rise up and be his answer. And I am going to encourage you to be an action person as opposed to a complaining person. Two very interesting models that we see laid out for us. We do not have a lot of action men and women, a lot of action figures in our culture. However, I would like us as the body of Christ to begin to model for other churches even what it looks like when men and women begin to step forward, not in spite and in hatred and in just with a desire to punch someone in the nose, but with love, with mercy, with kindness. Our weapons are different than the weapons of this world. They're not carnal. 
but they are mighty. And they will pull down strongholds. We work with prayer, and the world would mock that and go, oh, <laughs> oh that's going to do a lot. We work with love. We work with truth. However, when we stand up, when we rise up and we say, but truth must be established. This is God's word on it. God loves that person. I cannot sit by while the Jews are being exterminated. Or, for our sake, I can't stand by when little unborn babies are being exterminated. Is there anyone in this generation willing to stand up and speak? This is the challenge we face because we all feel like Esther. The voice of Mordecai comes to us and says, you, is it not that you have been set in that position? You've been given a voice. Look at your age. You're in the fullness of maturity. You can do something right now. You have resource. You can do something. You have a life. You have breath in your lungs. The angels wish they could have your body for but one day and do what they know needs to be done, but that's not their privilege. It's our privilege. We are the ones that have been stationed here for such a time as this with the faculties to do something. But if I do something, well, here's a list. Uh, You might have already had this list in your mind. It's funny how the devil will give us this list without uh, us needing to work very hard. Social ridicule, yeah, not very fun. Mockery and disdain, yeah, I'm not a fan of it either. Loss of popularity, well, you've worked hard for that. To give that up? To look like the fool and the imbecile in a generation? Loss of position. You keep standing, you could lose your job, very specifically. But not just that. You could lose your career. You could be blackballed in an industry. If you actually keep pressing this agenda, this is going against the grain, guys. Loss of legal protection. If you keep pressing it, you know that there are laws in our land that will protect you for freedom of speech. But if you keep pressing it, you'll see what happens. You see, what happens is you become, especially in a country like ours, where it's becoming anti-Christian, they'll come up with a loophole to find ways to get you silenced. And so what happens is if we stand up, these are very real things. The reason we speak boldly in America, which we don't really, but the reason we could is because we have freedom of speech. What's funny is they speak more boldly in other countries where they don't have it. That's an oddity I want us to just remember. And so we could lose our legal protection. Would that silence us? Some of the greatest Christians have spent time in prison. You know what they do when they go to prison? They change the prisoners. Or they go after the prison guards. In other words, wherever God settles us, that's our mission field. Loss of freedom. Loss of health. Study the life of Paul. His body is breaking down. Why? Because he's being spent. Loss of dignity. That's a hard one. Loss of future. Loss of life. Mm -hmm. In other words, I'm not trying to hide the calling of the Christian. Our job is not to preserve our life. Our job is to set it in his hands. He gave us his life. Our response is to give him our life. Jesus says, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. We know that scripture, but it's funny how we justify in America. It's like, well, he doesn't actually mean for me to give up my life. Are you sure about that? You see, it's God who, I'm not saying you go out and, like in early Christianity, go up to a Roman soldier, poke him and say, hey, I'm a Christian, and then spit on his face and run, because you're trying to lose your life. That is a good way of doing it. 
That isn't what we do. We're not stupid. We have a life to live. And yet that life belongs to Jesus for him to spend as he sees fit. Final quotation. We'll quote Jehovah to finish up. Jeremiah 5.1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places if you can find a man. I should have capitalized man right there. Would have been good. If there is anyone who executes justice, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. They didn't find one. Isn't that an interesting statement? And yet, they did. Just not in that generation. You see, there is a pardon that did come because God did find a man. Of course, he had to come to this earth to become that man so he could find himself as he sought to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. It's like, there he is. And that man carried that cross and died the hero's death. He stood in the gap in the darkest hour. That's a hero. But he sets a pattern, a pattern of preparation inside of us that says, follow me, pick up your cross, come this direction. So for each and every one of us, God desires to make us not into the capital M man, but into the lowercase m man. You can put a W on it for woman if that helps you. But he's looking to and fro for the ones that are readied to say, yes, Lord, here I am, send me. Here I am, take me. Here I am, use me. Father, I ask that you would work inside of our souls to ready us, that we would freshly yield to you, that we would not hold in a tight grip our own life. Lord, oftentimes when we hear about the grand people of history, we have a tendency to detach ourselves and feel like that is flannel board history. It's not real. It's not our life. And Lord, I, I just want to say, though we are unlikely heroes, though we are unlikely to ever lead nations, Lord, it is not unlikely that you, the Holy Spirit, will work in us to do mighty things and to do exploits in this generation. Lord, may we be readied for the dark hours to rise up and carry weights. May we not shudder in those moments, but may we, like Winston Churchill demonstrated, have a calm and a readiness, knowing that we walk in those steps of destiny, knowing that our God has providentially tailored our life to lead us to such moments. Lord, we trust you and yield to you this morning with grand expectation of what you will do. It's in the precious name we pray. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.